Good morning, everybody. If you haven't already, we'd love to have you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. This passage that Joel just read for us here this morning. So, did you get an extra hour of sleep last night? Or did you stay up an extra hour? How many, how many got an extra hour of sleep? Uh-huh. How many decided to stay up a little extra hour, do something else? Yeah? Very good. Well, you look well-rested this morning. That's good. So hopefully nobody falls asleep. Hopefully it's a lively enough morning, but uh, no, no worries if you do. Um, so a uh, quick story. Uh, one of the things I love to do, I, I love to hike. Uh, I'm a little bit like Joel. I'm wired like Joel. I love to be in the woods, in the wilderness, in nature. And I realized it, it's really cool because God wired all of us differently, right? And uh, we feel connected and close to God through different experiences. For me, I often feel most connected to God when I'm, when I'm in the woods, when I'm in the wilderness. And so a couple of uh, a couple years ago, about two years ago, I decided to hike a 14er with some buddies. You guys know what a 14er is? So it's a 14,000-foot peak. So uh, the summit of a mountain that's about 14,000 feet above sea level. And I lived in Kansas at the time. There are no 14ers in Kansas. Um, I know it's surprising to lots of people. Uh, but there are lots of them in Colorado. And the best thing about Kansas is that it's right next to Colorado. And so uh, a couple of buddies and I, we drove uh, to Colorado and took a couple of days to kind of get our, get our lungs, you know, in order because uh, of the altitude. And then we decided to hike Quandry Peak. We had, we'd planned on this for a while, trained for it. So Quandry Peak, uh, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful mountain. <clears throat> and we got on the trailhead about 4 a.m. And if you start hiking at that point, uh, right, you can't see anything. It was a, it was a beautiful, clear morning, but you, you need some help. So you got a headlamp. And so for about a little, little more than an hour, we were just, you know, just pounding our way. Just every step, you're going up, gaining altitude, gaining elevation. And your, your headlamp is shining on the trail, and you want to make sure you don't twist an ankle or something like that. So you're just like kind of head down, and, and it's dark, so you can't really take in your surroundings. But all of a sudden, about an hour in, we were just getting ready to crest above the tree line. And we decided this is a good spot for us to stop, you know, take a little break, take the packs off, get some nutrition before we make the final push for the summit. And we're sitting there, and we're sitting in this meadow, and we all turn our headlamps off, and all of a sudden, like for the first time, we looked up. And it was the most brilliantly clear morning. Just absolutely stunning, stunning morning. Superbly clear. The morning stars were on full display. And we sat there taking all of this in, and we watched a couple of meteorites like shoot across the sky in like the 20 minutes we were sitting there. It was like the, the most like enchanted moment. It was such an amazing moment. And the words of Psalm 19 came to my brain as I'm, as I'm sitting there. And Psalm 19 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Now, they have no speech, and they use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out to the ends of the earth, their words to the ends of the world. And I sat there thinking in that meadow, it's like, man, I would have come all of this way. I'd have driven this far, and I've hiked this far just for this experience. In fact, maybe I don't need to hike to the summit after all. Maybe this is good enough, right? That's not funny to anybody. You guys don't like to hike mountains? 
the idea of not going to the summit is absolutely ludicrous. But okay, so I'll scratch that one from my notes for next time. Um, but there, there is this, there is a sense of wonder. Like you, you get awestruck. You get overcome with wonder and beauty. Like sometimes it's, it's the wonder of the night sky like this. The wonder of, of, the, of a mountain. The, the wonder of just like the goodness of life. Like, how, how amazing it is that we exist, that we get a breath in our bodies, that we get a chance to be alive, uh, to have a place to belong. The wonder at the gift of friendship or companionship. I mean, it's a wonderful thing that we get to share life together. The wonder that the one who is wise enough and great enough to create all of this, to create this whole world, that he knows us, and he loves us, and he calls us by name. He, he is with us. Now, um, this morning, as we read this passage, I, I just want to talk about wonder. I, wanna, I want us to be filled with wonder. I hope that what happens through us just like looking at one of the most beautiful passages, in my opinion, in the entire Bible, this prayer that marks the end of Ephesians 3, that I hope what, if your cup is empty this morning, that I hope you can just like, like whatever you kind of know what that means. Like if you're feeling depleted, if you're feeling empty, that you can just kind of hold your cup, the cup of your soul out to God and just ask him to fill it. And I hope that everybody leaves today with a cup that is full. And maybe, maybe you need some wonder in your life. Like maybe there are things that have happened that have just kind of stripped the wonder away from us. And and it needs to be restored to us, the wonder of the goodness of this world. Because you don't have to climb a mountain to get it. You don't have to sit in a tree stand to get it. It is available to us at any and every moment. Like right here today, your heart can be bursting and overflowing with wonder. Which reminds me of one of my favorite songs. Now, I'm going to make somebody mad for sure, uh, but it's okay, right? Um, one of my favorite songs is Joy to the World. Now, why would that make somebody mad? It's because it's not a Christmas song. Right? Joy to the world. We sing it as a Christmas song, but Isaac Watts wrote this song, and he wrote it to be sung all year long. And we've kind of, and it's great as a Christmas song, don't get me wrong, but it's not like just meant to be like for that like two weeks of the year. Because anybody who listens to Christmas music for more than like two weeks of the year, like, yeah, problems, right? So, but joy to the world, joy to the world is meant to just like tell of the goodness of God and his glory and what he has done for us and what he will do for us all year long. And so here's what um, the, the, um, one of the verses of Joy to the World says. It says, He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love and the wonders of his love and the wondrous wonders of his love. I hope you experience today the wonders of his love that we can be overcome with the, the fullness of our souls is bursting with this truth, the reality of the wonder of God's love for us. Now, this passage in Ephesians chapter 3, in Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21, it is, um, it is, again, one of the most beautiful and compelling pieces of Scripture in the entire Bible. And it is, in a lot of ways, it's the hinge point in the book of Ephesians. Like, the first three chapters of Ephesians are all just like telling, this is what God has done for us. Remember, Ephesians is a sermon. And, and we're just getting to the halfway point of that sermon. And the first three chapters are all about um, flourishing in life with God, looking and, with, and marveling and with wonder at what God has done for us. Um, because God doesn't want 
our life with him to be out of like this heavy burden or drudgery, but he wants us to desire him. So Paul is like stoking desire in our hearts, this, this want to be with God. And he, he says like our flourishing is about this true view of who God is, that God looks like Jesus. It, our flourishing comes when we have an, a true identity, that we're rooted in, in Jesus. Our, our life is in Christ. Our identity is in him, that we're chosen and blessed and holy and blameless, redeemed, forgiven, included, filled with his spirit that he's given us an inheritance. That's our identity that he's given us belonging to the church and a mission to make his name known. That's part of our flourishing, is belonging and mission. There's, there's new life in the power of the gospel that we used to be dead in our sins, but now we're alive in Christ. And not only are we alive, but we're seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, that we're God's artwork. We're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good and beautiful things in the world. We are a new humanity no longer insiders and outsiders, us and them, but we're created in a new humanity in Christ called to put on display his grace. That's where we've been. Those are the first three chapters. And so as the Apostle Paul, he, he, he's like writing this, and likely he's not writing it himself. Likely he's talking to a scribe, right? So, so do you know where Paul is when he's writing all this stuff? He's in prison in Rome, right? He, he's a prisoner of the gospel, uh, because of the gospel, because of the, the announcing of the good news of Jesus, he's put in prison, and he's probably there in some Roman prison cell. You can imagine what that's like. And there's a scribe who's with him, and Paul is probably pacing around this little prison cell, just like you know, telling him like what to write as the Spirit is like filling Paul as he's, as he's speaking these words. <clears throat> and then he gets to <clears throat> this part of his letter, verse 14 of chapter 3, and, and then he says this. He says, for this reason, for everything that has come before, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, you imagine Paul, he's pacing around, he's speaking all these things, and all of a sudden, he's like so overcome with emotion, he just like, he falls to his knees. Now, what's the scribe doing in this moment? Am I, like, am I supposed to write that down? Like, you're, you're praying, right? He's like, no, 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 write it down, write it down. Like, this is a part of it. Like, Paul is so overcome with the goodness of what he's saying, the goodness of the gospel and all of its implications, that he just erupts into spontaneous praise and prayer and worship. I mean, it's so beautiful, isn't it? It's just like that, that's what happens when the gospel takes root in our hearts. He's kneeling before God and he's praying and he's praying for us. Like, he's praying for everyone who will believe the message that he is proclaiming about Jesus. And he's so overcome, he just like, he can't, he can't even stop himself long enough to punctuate. Like when I, when I do like a voice text or something like that, you know how you have to put like comma, period, you know, exclamation point. In fact, if you look in your Bibles, verses 14 to 19, it is one long sentence. Now, go, go ahead, next, next slide. Um, sorry, uh, slide seven. This is one long sentence. And like our, our Bibles, our commentators, like they add periods and commas and stuff like that. But it's, it's like, it's all one sentence. It's like he just, do you feel this? He's like so overcome that he can't shut it down. It just like erupts from him. Paul is grasping at the limits of language, trying to explain something that he can only experience. Right? He's trying, he's trying to put words on something that can't be like, just put into words. It, it has to be experienced. Have you ever experienced something so good 
And then you try to explain it to a friend, and you're just like, oh, just go try it. Like, just don't take my word for it. Like, if you want to know what Quandary Peak, what a 5 a.m. You know, morning is like on Quandary Peak, you, you have to go experience it because my words are going to fall short. And that's what Paul's saying. He's inspiring us so that we don't just take his word for it, but we experience the life that we are all meant to live. You need to just try it for yourself, to draw us in to the passion that he has for us. Um, my, last, my last thing of introduction here, like maybe some of us, like maybe we settle for a life with God that is less full than God wants for us. Like I think there are so many, there are so many Christians, and myself included, that often settle for a life with God that is like shrunken down into these little parameters because that, that's what I know and that's what I've experienced. And what if there's so much more? Like, that's, what, if, what if there's so much more, so much deeper, so much fuller, so much more life to be experienced with God, and it inspires us? Would you pray this dangerous prayer? Like, if you want to pray a dangerous prayer, if your life with God is, is stagnant and a little bit stale, and you're like, ah, I don't know, like, maybe I'm not, maybe this is all there is for me, would you pray a dangerous prayer? And the dangerous prayer is this, Lord, make me discontent with anything less than all of you. Like, if you pray that prayer, like, I promise you, God will answer it. And he will, like, he will do work in your heart. And, and he will open our hearts to experience more of him. Um, slide eight there. Um, Lord, make us discontent with anything less than all of you. Because the more we experience of God, the more there is to experience. So let's just, let's walk through, let's walk through this beautiful prayer for this reason, Paul says, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So when Paul prays, he prays to the Father, his, his reference to God, our Father, and the, the reality is the Father has a family, right? The Father has a family, and in Greek, these words, they, they kind of sound father, family, they, they almost sound like they fit together. It's um, patera and patria, the Father has a family. And who's a part of the father's family? What does the text say? What does Paul say? I mean, he just makes this massive claim. I pray this reason, I kneel before the father from whom millers and yoders derive their... Like, um, no, right? Like from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. This is a, a case of like the whole human family. If you are human, you have your origins in God, that God is your creator, that he is the one who formed you, that you have his fingerprints on your soul. The word families, it actually means like ethnicities, every ethnic group, every culture, not just here in Northeastern Ohio, but around the world, every family can trace their lineage back to their creator. That the cultural differences that we have, right? They're not barriers. They don't have to be barriers. That our differences can be a, a beautiful thing because we have this common identity as people created in God's image. So you can walk up to any person uh, in, in, around the world. This is Paul's image, and you can see them as a, a brother from another mother or a sister from a different mister, right? Um, I, am I, like, just totally striking out today? Are we awake in here? I'm, I'm I'm trying to exude some passion here, but it, preach better, Eric, preach better. So, 
This is the reality. Every family on heaven and earth derives its name from our Father. Now, but here's the other part of that, is it's possible to live estranged from our Father. Right? That God has a lot of children, a lot of people who he loves and creates and longs to include in his family table who live estranged from him, who have wandered off, who have wandered far from home. And they've been gone so long that they don't know how to get back. Or nobody has ever told them that you, you have a place, you have a father who loves you, who's for you, who, who's searching for you, like your, your father is searching for you. And, and so this is part of like the, the pain I think that God feels is like he has these children who, who aren't with him, who have their backs turned to him, are, are moving away. And, and the, the reality is that when we discover that there is a father who longs for us and we turn around and we come to him, that we are born again. We are born from above, as John 3 says, into his family. It's like, we're, it's like we're reborn. We have this new identity, our true identity. It's always been our identity, but we've been estranged from it. And now we receive, like, God is my father, my true father, and my heart finds its true home in him. So this, this is what we're called to. This is what Paul envisions. Um, and then he goes on. Like, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And the idea of a name isn't just like, I, I realize like some of us, we got our names just because like our parents liked the name. It was a cool name. Um, but in the Bible, names meant something. Like your name was your identity. It wasn't just like a, um, and it wasn't just um, a, a label. Excuse me, I got a cough. It's going to be loud. There we go. There we go. It wasn't just a label. Your name was your identity. Do you remember the story of this guy named Joseph, uh, excuse me, Jacob in the Old Testament? Sorry, Jacob, you can read about it in the book of Genesis. Uh, so, so here's a, a little bit about Jacob's story. Dude had a rough name. Jacob is, is kind of a, sorry, anybody named Jacob in the room? Sorry, I don't, it's, it's been redeemed, right? But in the Old Testament, Jacob was kind of a rough name. Here's where it came from, Genesis 25, all the way back, Genesis 25. It says, when the time came for her, his mother, to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb, and the first one came out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Ted Nugent. They named him Esau. And after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, right? So the younger brother is like grasping Esau's <clears throat> heel, and so they named him Jacob. Well, what does Jacob mean? Like, do I need some water? Oh, sure. That's not what it means, but yeah. Thank you, sweetie. Yeah, it means heel grabber. Jacob means like somebody who's like grasping um, at, at someone's heel or somebody who's like trying to trip somebody else up. That's what he was. Like that was his, that was his whole deal. It means to supersede by force or by treachery. And Jacob lived up to his name. I mean, this was his identity. And um, there's a story a couple of chapters later where, where Jacob wants to steal the blessing of the eldest son because the blessing, the birthright, was, was passed down to the eldest son and he, be, he decides to go in and deceive his father who couldn't see any longer and his senses were a little bit dulled. So Jacob and their mom, it's like messed up family dynamics. They try to, he puts these, these kind of um, garments on his arms to make himself appear hairier than he really was. Thank you. And, um, and he goes in to try to deceive his dad. And his dad at one point asks him, says, what's your name? Who are you? And do you know what he says? He says, I'm Esau. 
I'm like, he's, he's an imposter, right? He's, he's grasping for this birthright, and so he lies about his identity, tries to be somebody else. And then years and years and years go by, and this is just, this is who he is. He's grasping, he's tripping other, people's up, he's trying, other people up, he's trying to supersede them by treachery or by force. And then comes this beautiful, this beautiful scene where he encounters God and God grabs onto him. And God grasps him. And God renames him. And in Genesis 35.10, it says this, God said to him, your name is Jacob. This is your identity. You're, you're a conniver. You're a heel grabber. You're tripping other people up. This is, this is who you are. But you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. You're not just a heel grabber anymore. Now you are an overcomer. That's what the word Israel means. It's like one who overcomes. This is beautiful. This is what God does. Now, Jacob could have tried his whole life to not live up to his name. Right? He could have just said, you know what? This morning, willpower. I'm not going to be Jacob any longer. Just, I just need a little bit more willpower. I just need a little bit more accountability. I just need a little more self-discipline. I just need a little bit more whatever it is, like some health, self-help, self-discovery techniques. Just like, you know, learn who you really are, Jacob. And he could have tried that his whole life. And would it have worked? The answer is no. Do you know what he needed? He needed the new name. And God grabs a hold of him, and he gives him a new name, and he says, that's not who you are anymore. This is who you are. And God names him and gives him a new identity, and then he just invites Jacob to live into that new identity. Like when your father names you, it changes your future. It changes your, your identity of, of who you are. And so some of us, we've picked up names that other people have called us. I'm guessing everybody can remember names that they were called, that, that just kind of like stuck. And they, they like were like a, a label that was put on our soul, and we've carried around in our identity. We've tried not to be that person. And many of them, like, they're, they're not good, right? They're... And, we, and we tried to shake off those old labels, those old names, and what we need is our Father our Father to give us a new name, and then he calls us into a new identity. This is what God wants to do for us, that, that God wants to take that old name, and he says, you're no longer this. Like, this is not who you are. You are born from above. You're born into God's family, and I'm going to give you a new name, and it's a name of blessing, and it's a name that's going to call you into your future that is hope, is full of hope and goodness and full of life. This is, this is what God wants to do. And then Paul goes on, verse 16, he says, I pray so I'm praying this for you. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Like, so many people have this vision of God where God is kind of stingy. You kind of have to beg a little bit. Like, one of the things I notice about, like, our prayer language, like, not, not necessarily around here, but, like, just in the Christian church, we often use the word just a lot. God, I just want to pray for just this thing, and if you could just, like, touch, you know, this, this person's life. And Have you noticed that? Like, pay attention to your, to your own prayer life. And, like, where does that come from? Well, it's like, God, I don't want to ask too much. I'm just going to ask a little bit, like, just a little bit something. And, and here Paul's painting this picture of, like, God is, like, he's so wealthy. Like, he is abundantly rich. He has these storehouses of riches of grace. Like, God's not stingy. God is not austere. God is not uh, somebody who is, like, 
who is stern and hard to approach, that God has this treasure house of riches of grace, and he longs to bless us with it, to give it to us. And so we can come to our Father, and we can open ourselves up, and we can trust that he has abundantly more than we can ever ask for. His grace is not in short supply, that we can receive it, this, this abundant vision of God. And then he says that he will strengthen us with power in our inner being. Like that one of the things God does when he opens up his storehouses of riches of his grace is he strengthens us with power in our inner being. That he delivers the treasures of his riches to us through his spirit that dwells in our hearts. Like that's how we access the treasures of, of God's grace. Do you know you have an inner being? Have you thought about your inner being recently? I mean, maybe that's not language we use very much, but it's true. You have an outer world and you have an inner world. And what is your outer world? Well, your outer world is your, your physical body and it's what other people see about you and it's what other people know about you and it's like your story and it's what you do in the world. It's your education or it's your job or all of that. That's all in your outer world, right? And we, it's, it's the self that we present to the rest of the world. And you have an inner world, an inner being. This is the world of the, the soul. It's the unseen world. And it's in this place, this inner world, this stillness, this quietness within us, that this is where we abide with God. This is where God's spirit comes to dwell in our inner world. Um, one commentator says it this way, it's the base of operations at the center of a person's being where the spirit does his strengthening and renovating work. And as we do this, as his spirit comes to dwell in our inner person, in our inner world, then it overflows into our outer world. Like, that's how it's meant to be. It's not an outside-in kind of thing. It's this inside-out. God dwells in us through his spirit, and he begins to renew us and transform us from the inside-out, and then it, it moves into our outer world. Now, we live in a world that is obsessed with the outer world with how things appear, with the appearance of things, right? I, I remember this, this, like, this interaction with this mom and son on the playground, and he's playing basketball. It's like any kid, right? You know, lowers the rim way down. He's wanting to dunk this basketball. And it's really funny. You know, we're playing. I'm playing with my kids and watching. And, but every time he dunks the ball, like, mom isn't playing with him. Do you know what she's doing? Like, she's taking pictures, right, of him which, oh, great. And so he's like posing, like, you know, tongue hanging out as he's dunking and stuff. And every, after every one, he goes over and looks at the camera or at the phone, right? And he's like, ah, oh, let, me, let me do it again. Let me do it again. And then finally, he gets like one really good one. He's like, post it. Like, what's going on? It's like, this kid has been nurtured to say your outer world is what matters, like, what you post online, what other people see about you, what other people think about you. If like, it's not just like having fun. It's not just playing. It's not just enjoying a mother-son relationship. It's like this outer world. And we've been so cultivated that that's what matters. And that's not where the work of God is. It's in our inner world, right? This, this secret place within us where God's spirit dwells. And that's where our attention goes. Not in the world. Like, nobody's going to post that. It's... It's this place where we're invited to abide with God. Verse 17, he goes on, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
So he's going to strengthen you through his spirit in your inner person so that Christ is the one who dwells in your hearts through faith. That, that God is going to make his home in us. That, that he dwells in us. Like, if you're going to ask, like, man, what is Jesus' address? It's you. Like, that's what he wants. It's like he doesn't have an address. There's, it's not like the address of this building or any other church. It's the address of his people. Like, that this is what Jesus desires, is that our hearts would be a place where he dwells in us through faith. That as we trust him more and more, our hearts become his home. But notice that it says through faith. That it's not just something he's going to do for us. It's something we get to participate in. That you have a role to play in Christ coming to dwell in your heart through faith. And I, I believe that every believer, the moment you are born from above, the moment you send, surrender your life to Jesus, that the Spirit comes to dwell in us. I mean, I, Scripture teaches that. That you, you're no longer who you were, you're a new person, and the Spirit comes to dwell in you. And I, I don't think that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. I think this is this, this ongoing learning to dwell with Jesus more and more that our hearts become more and more at home for the presence of Christ in our life. And it happens through faith. And this means we have something to do about it. So there are these practices of abiding with Jesus, practices of prayer, Meditating on God's word, practices of worship, relationships, community. Like, it doesn't just happen. And, and so, like, for, for us, um, if, you come, if, like, if you come and you say, like, man, my heart is empty on a Sunday morning. And I just, like, I need worship and the worship team to fill me up again. Right? Like, that's okay sometimes. Or if, like, you, you need, like, a word from, from Scripture to to fill you up again. Like, we're all there sometimes. But if you find yourself, like, week after week after week, just like, this is, I don't have any other moment in my life where I'm filled up except Sunday morning. Like, you are not going to experience the fullness of life with God. Like, so we have this calling to abide with him, to practice our relationship with him, to, to foster this place where Jesus begins to dwell more and more in our hearts through faith, through our practices of faith, and what happens then is that we become rooted and established in love. And I pray that you being rooted and grounded, established in love. This is the picture. It's a picture of a tree, right? What we do, when we abide with Jesus more and more, it's like the roots of our life go deep down into the soil of God's love. Now, what do roots do? If you're, Joel was in a tree almost all day yesterday. Um, I don't know how many of you have like been out among the trees or whatever, but what do roots do? Anybody? Anybody? You got to talk real loud. They what? They hold the tree. It, it like grounds it and stabilizes the tree through wind, right? What else? Get nutrients. Yes. So it's like the, the way the tree grows is through drawing nutrients from the soil through the root system. That's what, that's what roots do. They provide nourishment and stability to hold the tree through storms. And this is what God's love does for us. Like as we abide with him, it's like... These, these practices of staying connected to Jesus, it's like the roots of our life, they draw nourishment from his, from his love. That we're meant to be dependent on him. Like we're created beings meant to be dependent on our creator. And so all of our identity comes from him. Like who are you? Oh man, I'm who God says I am. I'm, that's my identity. 
Well, where does your worth come from? It doesn't come from my outer world. It comes from who Jesus says I am. Like, um, all of our worth, all of our meaning, all of our life, all of our identity begins to be drawn from God's love for us, for who he says we are. And what happens when we do that, if that's true of us, then we become stable. Like, storms of life are going to blow, right? Wind, it is going to blow. It just is. It's part of living in a broken, fallen world. And, and if we have our roots in God's love, these, these, this root system will stabilize us through the storms of life. So maybe, like, maybe a practice for you is this. Like, maybe you're going through a storm right now where it's just like, man, I don't know if I can sustain this. And you can visualize this. Pray into it. Like, pray into it to say, like, God, I need you. I need you, Holy Spirit, to keep me steady and stable through this storm. Like, Jesus, today I choose to put my roots deep into your love. Would you nourish my soul and would you feed me and fill me because I'm dry and depleted? Just pray into this stuff. Make it a part of, of your life. This is what the root system does. Do you know it's... it's um, do you guys know who Frank Laubach is? Have I shared about Frank Laubach before? So this guy, Frank Laubach, he's one of my spiritual heroes, and he was a missionary um, in the Philippines, and he just, he was at a time in his life when he was so broken, depleted, uh, lots of loss and pain, and rather than it leading him to despair and cynicism, it led him to, to this place called Signal Hill up behind his house, and he would just go and sit with God. And um, he began to write, a, like, journal entries, and his journal entries have been put together in this tiny little book. I, man, I highly recommend it. It's called Letters from a Modern Mystic, and it's from, it, it's maybe, what, 80, 90 years old now. Now, don't get thrown off by the word mystic. Like, it's not, we're not talking, like, Eastern mysticism. What mystic means here is just, like, he believed that when he talked to God, God talked back. Do you believe God speaks to you? I mean, that's like a, a mystical experience, right, that you believe, like, the creator will speak to you. So this is what he does. So, so he has this passion to say, I need the windows of my life open to the presence of God every moment. Like every, so he just made a game of it to try to see if every waking moment of my life I could be attentive to God's presence, to Jesus dwelling in my heart. And here's what he says. Perhaps a man who's been an ordained minister since 1914, that's a long time ago, be an ordained minister, uh, ought to be ashamed to confess that he never before felt the joy of complete hourly, minute by minute, minute by minute. Now what shall I call it? It's more than surrender. I, I had that before. It's more than listening to God. I tried that before. I can't find the word that will mean to you or to me what I'm now experiencing. It's a will act. I compel my mind open, to open, straight out toward God. I wait and I listen with determined sensitiveness. I fix my attention there, and sometimes it requires a long time, early in the morning, to attain that mental state. But I'm determined not to get out of bed until that mindset, that concentration upon God is settled. It also requires determination to keep it there. For I feel as though my words and thoughts are often near um, or, or others near me were constantly exerting a drag backward or sideways. But for the most part recently, I've not lost sight of this purpose for long and have soon come back to it. After a while, perhaps, maybe it will become a habit. And then he goes on, he says, as for me, I never lived. It's like I was half dead. 
I was a rotting tree until I reached the place where I wholly, with utter honesty, resolved and I re-resolved that I would find God's will, that I would do it with every fiber, though every fiber in me said no, that I would win the battle in my thoughts as though some deep artesian well has now been struck in my soul and strength is coming forth. Now, I don't claim success yet, even for one full day in my mind, not complete success all day, but there are some days so close to success. And every day is tingling with joy at the glorious discovery that this thing is eternal, that this thing is undefeatable, that you and I shall soon blow away from our bodies. Money, praise, poverty, opposition, this outer world, these things make no difference for they will all be forgotten in a thousand years. But this spirit which comes to a mind set upon conscious surrender, this spirit is a timeless life. He says, clearly, clearly my job is not to go, he was a missionary, right? Clearly my job isn't to go into the town plaza. I'm sorry. Clearly my job is not to go into the town plaza and to make converts. But my job is to live wrapped in God, trembling to his thoughts, burning with his passion. And my loved one, that is the best gift that you can give to your own town. The most wonderful discovery has ever come to me is that I do not have to wait until some future time for this glorious hour. I need not sing, oh, that will glory will be for me and wait for any grave that this hour, today, it can be heaven. And any hour, anybody can be as rich as God. For you do not for you do not see that God is trying experiments with human lives. That is why there are so many of them. There are as many as, as 1 billion, 700 million experiments going on around the world. And the question is, is, that God asks is this, how far will this man or this woman allow me to carry them this hour? That this hour can be as wonderful as any hour that any human being has ever lived. But how practical is this for the average person? It seems to me that the plowman could be like, and then he references some saint of old, I don't know. But when he is lonesome and a mistreated plowboy with eyes on the furrow, yet his hands on the lines, but his thoughts on God. That the carpenter could be filled with God, as was Christ when he drove the nails. The millions of looms and lathes could make glorious hours. That some hours spent by a night watchman might be the most glorious ever lived on earth that God is not through yet. Though I think that he is, is breaking through, and I think the poor have less callousness for him to overcome the, as a rule than that of the rich. Like I read this sometimes when my soul like starts to like get, get cold, like when my heart begins to get cold. I just read these again and again because it's evidence that like what I'm experiencing isn't all that there is that there's a deeper reality to God. Do you believe that? And do you want it? Like, do you want this life with God that is full and alive? That's what Paul experiences. That's what Frank Laubach experienced. That's what we are called to experience. And, and lastly, he says this, may, that you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What are the dimensions of God's love? 
How high is it? How long is it? How wide is it? How deep is it? I mean, Paul's just like, you, just, you could explore it for the rest of your life and you never get to the end of it. How far, how wide is God's love? It's as far as the east is from the west. How long? It's as long as eternity. How high? It's as high as heaven is above the earth. How deep? It's deeper than you can ever imagine. That no matter how deep you go, it is deeper still. And so the only way you can explain it, the only thing you can do is experience it. And so he says that you would know this love that surpasses knowledge. Next slide, slide 20. That you would know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you would experience it, and that you would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This is like when he talks about filling, this is temple language. Right, throughout the Old Testament, when God's presence came, do you know what happened in the tabernacle in Exodus? When, when God's presence filled the tabernacle, it's like the glory of God settled on it like a cloud so thick that the people couldn't even do their work. The religious leaders, they couldn't even do their work because God's presence was there. And then in 1 Kings, uh, when the, they build the temple and they pray and God's presence, his glory comes and he fills the temple, um, Again, it's the same thing. God's presence comes and he it fills the temple. In 1 Kings 8, so, so much that the priests couldn't perform their service because the cloud of God's glory filled the temple. This is exactly what Paul has in mind. And where is that temple where God's glory dwells? Anybody? It's right here. It's right here. Now, here's the difference between what he said earlier and what he says here. Is... The you, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Is that you personally? Or is that you plural? This is a plural sense of you. That, you know, like this picture, right, is like as he moves through this prayer, it, it starts personal, like that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you would be rooted and established in love, like that there would be this inner experience that you have, but it doesn't stay personal. It expands to, to God's people that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, that God's spirit would come and dwell within you as a people, that the new temple, the temple that God is building today is this new humanity gathered around Jesus, that God comes and he fills us with his Holy Spirit. And this is like such a beautiful thing because like in this day when Paul was writing this, to the Ephesian church, we've, we've talked about this, right? The temple that they would have thought about was the temple of Artemis. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This amazing one of the seven wonders of the world. 2,000 years ago, man, this would have been like the temple everybody thought about in Ephesus. What does it look like today, 2,000 years later? Not quite as glorious, right? 2,000 years ago. Like, can you imagine Paul writing this? He's like, okay, all right, I know there's a beautiful temple in, Ephesian, in Ephesus, um, but someday that temple is going to be in ruins, and you know whose temple is going to be more glorious? It was the temple of the living God that is built in you. You would have thought, I don't know, like that's like one of the seven wonders of the world, and 2,000 years later, that temple is in ruins, and this temple is alive and well. And it is an ever-expanding temple. It's not restrictive. It's not like, you know, like we, we hold it tightly, but it is this ever-expanding temple. And every time somebody puts their faith in Jesus, they join in this temple that God is building around the world, and it, you are part of it, and it is beautiful. And Christ wants to fill you, and he wants to fill us so that he can fill the whole world with his presence. This is where the whole story is going, right, is that someday in the end, Christ will fill the whole world with his presence. This 
is what the prophet Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 2, verse 14. He says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. So your formation matters. Right? Your personal life with God matters because it's a part of him filling you and then him filling you so that he can, like through us and around us, he can fill the whole world with his presence. You're a part of this. Like Live into it. And, and so this is the hinge point for the rest of for the rest of the book of Ephesians. Like, this is, it's all like what God has done for us. Look at how beautiful this calling is. He's placed on every one of our lives. And now the rest of Ephesians is like, it gets real. Because you know what? There's nothing off limits. The way you treat other people, it matters. Your body, it matters. Your sexuality, it matters. Your marriages, your relationships, it matters. Like, it's just like, this, this, is, this is the hinge point, and I want us to just like let this in, like this, this goodness of what God has in mind so that it motivates us to, to live into the calling that God has on our lives because, because it is a beautiful calling. And he ends with this benediction. He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Ah, it's so beautiful. So, how do you respond to something like this? It's like, maybe, like, okay, so maybe your heart has been robbed of wonder. Like, maybe there have been things that happened in your life. There's pain, disappointment, and what loss. And so, if you're honest and you're like, when's the last time I experienced just, like, overwhelming wonder? Whereas, like, who couldn't help it? It's just like, Paul, I, for this reason, I'm on my knees. And you're just overcome with it. And it's been a long time since you've experienced wonder like that. And maybe, like, you've sunken into this place of cynicism where your heart has grown pretty hard and pretty cold. Would you be honest about that? Just be really honest about it. Don't hide it. Don't, like, be embarrassed of it. Just, like, be honest about it. And just be honest to God and say, Lord, my heart is cold and my heart is hard and you know why and Lord I don't want it to stay hard and cold and I trust that you are able to take it and, and, and turn this heart that's cold into a heart that's soft and warm toward you would you do that like maybe maybe that's your response to this like God I need it I need the wonder of your love would you just ask God to experience the wonder of his love this is a prayer God loves to answer God like fill me with the wonder of your love let me see it let me be open to it open the windows of my soul so I can experience it Paul is in a prison cell in Rome and he is overcome with euphoric wonder and joy at the goodness of God your circumstances do not have to dictate the well-being of your soul some of us are like well I'm doing good under the circumstances what in the world are you doing under the circumstances you don't have to live under the circumstances. Like there's an invitation to live this inner world, like beyond the circumstances of our lives. It, it takes a choice, it takes effort, it takes faith, it takes power and strength to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, fixed on our Father who is above all, over all, and through all. Maybe you're still living by your old name and just by faith today, you just need to say like, Lord, I need a new name from you. Like, this old name, it doesn't define me any longer. Um, I, I, I refuse to let this, this label 
determine my future, and so Jesus, would you speak a new name over me? Father, would you speak a new name over me? Spirit, would you fill me with my new identity? And maybe you need some help. Maybe you need some people around you who, who love Jesus and who love you to like speak truth into who you really are, like this new name, this new identity, to come out of shame and isolation and, and, and to step into who you were always meant to be. God, we are so, like, are so grateful for what you have, this amazing gift that you've given to us. Um, the gift of your son, the gift of your spirit, the gift of your word that leads us into the fullness of life with you. And so God, I, I pray for us. Lord, Lord you, have, you have big vision for us. Um, and it has nothing to do with the size of a gathering. It has nothing to do with um, the, the outer world stuff that, that we often measure as a church but it has everything to do with this inner experience with you, this life with you, abiding with you, that you would fill our hearts. I pray that you would fill us today. God, we, we take the empty containers of our lives, we take our hearts that are like just devoid of wonder, and we open them to you, and we say, Lord, we need to experience the wonder of your love. Root us and establish us in it. Fill us, God. Don't let us settle for, ex- for just like somebody else's experience. Don't let us settle for some explanation, but let us experience it. God, would you do it today? Would you renew us and revive us and restore us with your wondrous love? Make us discontent for anything less than the fullness of you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.